Well, if we were raised in a Christian home, or if we've been reading our Bible for some time, then there are certain verses, there are certain teachings that we instantly associate with the book of James. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Faith without works is dead. Let not many of you become teachers because you know you will incur stricter judgment. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The prayer of faith will heal the sick person. That's all James. A letter likely written in the 40s when Claudius was Caesar and during a time when the Jews of Jerusalem were being persecuted. They had been displaced, scattered among the nations by an imperial edict, which is why we read in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So that suggests that the original readers of the book were almost certainly Christian Jews, former residents of Jerusalem, and former members of the Jerusalem church where James is an elder. Uh, James is also a half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Mary is their mutual mother. Which means this is a letter written by a pastor to his dispersed, displaced, persecuted sheep. These are people who know suffering. They are familiar with trials, which is probably the teaching the book is best known for, isn't it? And truly, James's theological contribution to the matter of trials and suffering in the Christian life is indispensable. There are many texts related to trials and suffering in the Bible. The book of First uh, Peter, James, Revelation all come to mind. But their emphasis, all of them, is different. Each book lends a different perspective on the subject. And of course, each book must be visited repeatedly over and over during the course of our Christian pilgrimage. It's not enough to hear James chapter 1 preached one time or to, to read it once and then sort of put it up on a shelf. This is truth we need to rehearse to our hearts, brothers and sisters, again and again on our knees and in deepest prayer and humility. The suffering of God's people is related to a host of other themes such as God's sovereignty, human responsibility, the love of God, God's stance towards good and evil, Christian maturity, God disciplining his children, the role of prayer. But when it comes to the question of how Christians should respond to trials, God's purpose in trials, then the book of James fills in a big part of the biblical picture. It's really, it's the go-to text. James doesn't give us all the answers, of course. No one author does, but it's an excellent place to start. And we should note something from the outset. Writing as James' inspired agent, James doesn't allow Christians to merely endure trials and suffering passively without complaint. This text isn't an appeal to Christian stoicism. Don't complain. If you're going through a hard time, just put on a happy face. Act like nothing is bothering you. Otherwise, you're letting down the team. No. God requires much more of his children. James' command to Christians is to respond to trials with pure joy. 
And in the midst of trials, James wants Christians to pray to God. Not that the trial would cease, but that God would grant wisdom. Wisdom to see the trial as God's means of purifying our faith, persevering us in the faith, making us mature, perfect, and complete, lacking nothing. Is it any wonder God's people need to return to these verses over and over and over again? Pray for wisdom? No, no, no. How about, God, I pray for the cessation of all pain and all discomforts. I pray that now in Jesus' name. May the trial itself stop. I don't know about you. Maybe you're standing on the summit of Sanctification's Mount Everest, but that's how I'm prone to pray when I'm in pain. In the final analysis, beloved, this comes down to our Christian maturity. This is a text all about Christian maturity. That constant battleground where our sinful selfishness meets God's truth and God's will for our life for his glory. Now, James isn't a man to beat about the bush. After the initial opening of verse 1, he launches directly into making a strong, stirring appeal to his readers. There's no greetings here, greetings here. It's just directly, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And first things first, this verse is to be taken literally. James isn't using hyperbole here for rhetorical effect. He's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God is revealing through James the truth he wants his people to know. And of course, what's remarkable about verse 2 is that it applies to situations in which a joyful response might seem very unnatural. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy. James isn't saying joy is appropriate only within a narrow range of circumstances. Whenever we face certain kinds of trials, Christian, then, then yes, consider it pure joy, but not other sorts of trials. Trials uh, related to money, for instance, or mental health, or a rotten marriage, or bereavement. We can't think of a trial. We can't think of a hardship, a loss, a pain, a disease, a disorder, an injustice, to which verse 2 does not apply. Which isn't to suggest that Christians facing trials will have no emotional response other than joy. God is not commanding Christians never to be saddened by difficulties, grieved, deeply grieved by loss. What James is teaching us is that for Christians, trials should be occasions for genuine rejoicing. Now, why that's so, how that can be, is explained in verses 3 and 4, which we'll come to in a moment. But just on the surface, I mean, it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? It sounds downright fanatical, perhaps. Is James advocating some weird sort of Christian masochism here? Does he want us to find joy in pain? Oh, of course not. It isn't the suffering itself which brings us joy. 
It's what the suffering develops in us. Rejoice in that prospect, Christian, what the suffering is developing in you by God's grace. So this text, I pray, will be operating on two levels as I preach it this morning. The level of theological knowledge, the what, which undergirds holy living, the how. So theological knowledge, the what, which then undergirds holy living. How do we do this? Right teaching produces right living. Right teaching produces right living. Of course, until Jesus returns, none of God's people will be sinlessly perfect, but we are able, God's grace assisting us, to come a long way to see our sin, to see our own unbiblical responses to trials, and to change our prayer habits, and so conform our way to the Word of God. Now, this might be the longest introduction in the history of John Bell's sermons, but allow me just two more minutes Allow me to paint for you a very unflattering self-portrait. Brothers and sisters, apart from God's grace, apart from praying to God for wisdom, here's how I'm prone to respond to trials. Perhaps you can relate to this. And if so, then it just goes to show how badly we both need correction from God's word. I'm not desirous of joyfully allowing God to accomplish his purposes in my life through the trials that he sovereignly brings my way. I'm not a man who strives to look beneath the surface of the negative circumstances and events and believe in God's sovereign good purposes. Quite frankly, I'm not prone to believe God's accomplishing anything worthwhile in sending trial and suffering my way. When I'm in the midnight of my soul, if I'm not constantly calling upon God for grace and wisdom, then I'm not concerned with what God is doing for me in my affliction or how he's transforming me. I only want the trial to end. I only want the pain to stop. My health, my wealth, my job, my relationships, my reputation my general ease of life, that's all more precious to me and fills me with more joy than any prospect of holiness that might be cultivated through affliction. Don't misunderstand me. I love holiness and I yearn to be holy. I yearn to be a holy man, just not through trial and suffering. There are certain lessons I'd rather not learn, frankly, if they're only learned through pain. I don't value enough God's good purposes in my life in refining my faith, persevering me in my faith, fitting me for heavenly perfection. I don't value those blessings enough if they come at the cost of Jill being paralyzed in a car wreck, God shutting down my pastoral ministry, or doctors discovering a tumor in my brainstem. And it's not just the really dramatic stuff like cancer and paralysis. I'd rather be spared even the little mundane hardships and annoyances and problems of life. Choosing between comfort and ease versus God's holy and good purposes being worked out in my life through hardship and suffering, apart from constant, constant prayer, seeking God's face, asking God for wisdom, that's no choice at all. So I say, thank 
God for the revelation of his word. Thank God for James chapter 1. This text shows me just how askew my priorities in life can be. It's corrective, and it's correction my soul desperately needs. Look in your bulletin. Point number one. Christian, consider all manner of trials occasions for pure joy. The immediate goal of trials is to build our perseverance in the faith. So follow along closely. Verse 2. All that kind of heavy spade work has been completed now. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, this word testing can be confusing. Uh, in this context, the idea is not that trials test or determine whether a person has genuine Christian faith or not. Certainly, trials can work that way. For every Christian, there will be sovereignly ordained circumstances brought into all our lives when the priorities of this world, the lure of wealth, prestige, power, pleasure, ease, will conflict with the priorities of the teachings of Holy Scripture. And so we'll have to make a choice. A choice in the genuineness of our faith is tested, like what Jesus spoke about in the parable of the soils. But the idea in this passage isn't that trials determine whether a person has genuine faith or not. James is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. And for genuine believers, trials strengthen and purify the faith that is already present. If we want to refine a precious metal like gold, we heat it up in what's called a crucible until it's a molten mass. When that happens, all the impurities called dross, they float to the surface, where it's easily skimmed off, leaving pure gold. Difficulties, trials, testings, tribulations, and sufferings are a means by which our faith, tested in the crucible of adversity, can be purified of dross and strengthened. And that tested faith, that tested faith then leads to perseverance in the faith, which is an excellent reason for facing trials with pure joy, loved ones. Trials are like weights that build up our muscles. In this case, the muscles of faith. And just like a muscle becomes stronger when it faces resistance, so Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul, but only when we face difficulty. That trial in your life right now, Christian, it's there for the perseverance that it affects. We might think Difficulty, adversity, trial, suffering, and pain would have the opposite effect. We might think hardship would whittle away or undermine our faith and make us weaker, but instead, God uses trials to make our faith stronger so that, so that we persevere in the faith. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But that perseverance doesn't happen automatically. People, I want you to hear me at this point. This isn't a matter of Christians coasting on autopilot through chemotherapy, a difficult marriage, or the loss of our investments, and then coming out the other side with all the dross skimmed away on the path of persevering faith. Make no mistake, God is not telling us that just by experiencing the hardship and living through it, your faith will be stronger by default. And so you will persevere. 
No. This isn't a matter of what doesn't kill me will only make me stronger. This isn't the Zen Buddhist approach to life of Kintsugi, where broken pieces of pottery are joined together with gold emphasizing glorious imperfection. This isn't the Christian equivalent of when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. It's not that. Follow the text closely, because the last thing we want to do is be operating with only about 45% of the biblical information on this topic. It's so important. We can't be doing that. That would be disastrous. Please notice, you can see this in your outline, perseverance in the faith is not the ultimate end of trials for James. It's merely the immediate end. Perseverance is certainly important, but it leads to something more important, which we'll come to in a second. However, the benefits of testing come only to believers who respond to trials in the correct way. The benefits of testing come only to believers who respond to trials in the correct way. You can, you can do it the wrong way. It will be of no benefit at all. Christians must allow perseverance to do its God-intended work. Look at verse 4. Let, and that's an imperative verb. That's the command. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature or perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Perfect completeness, lacking nothing. This verse is speaking of what will be ours after having our persevering faith tested through trial in the new heavens and new earth. It's looking ahead to that last day and for all of eternity. James is teaching us that faith produced by our persevering through trials is intricately linked with our participation in the consummated kingdom of God. So do you see the progression? It's essential that you do. Trials, which leads to the testing of our faith, which then produces perseverance, which results in our holy perfection, maturity, and completeness in the consummated kingdom of God. But it starts now. It starts in this life. The maturity begins in this life, and it's a lifelong project. It's a, it's a profound, profound teaching. Th- this should be completely reorienting our perspective on the trials the Lord brings our way. The thing is, though, our, our priorities are so often sinfully warped, aren't they? And so the doctrine just stays in our head. We don't let it percolate down to our heart. Brother, sister, as it's manifested in your daily living, can you honestly say trials are serving their biblical, God-glorifying purpose? Are you allowing it? Are you giving those trials theological room in your life to do their good work, their God-intended work? we must learn that part of living as faithful children of a sovereign God is tied to trusting God where he can only be seen dimly behind circumstances and events that are painful, sorrowful, evil. And just as an aside, this is why the health and wealth prosperity gospel is straight from the pit of hell. It's essential we not see the Christian life as being free of adversity pain, and suffering. No, God uses those very things for increasing our faith and our maturity and our reliance upon him. Trials strengthen our faith. They produce perseverance and ultimately results in our enjoying the blessings of the new heavens and new earth. 
So thank God for adversity, Kristen. Thank God for trials. Thank God for sickness. Thank God when things at church aren't 100% to your satisfaction. Thank God for a difficult marriage. Thank God for singleness. Thank God for economic hardship. It's all a matter of perspective. And if you're thinking, I don't know, John, you sound like you might have gone a little off the deep end there. Thank God for illness and a bad marriage. That's too much. Well, again, let me qualify this. We're not taking delight in the trial itself. I'm not saying that. This isn't a call to Christian masochism. We're not to delight in sin. What we're delighting in, what we're thanking God for, how we're able to count trials of various kinds, pure joy, is what the God-ordained trial is producing in us. Just think if someone were to tell you, and I used this illustration a few months ago, I'm going to say it again. Just think if someone were to tell you, you will have to endure great hardship and severe tribulation, but in the end, in the end, you will be fabulously wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Or you will have to endure great hardship and trial as a single person. But in the end, you'll have a wonderful, loving spouse and a passel of beautiful children. Or you will have to endure great hardship and trial, but in the end, you will wield awesome political power. I think most of us would be inclined to say, well, if that's what it takes, I'm ready to do it. Bring it on. Bring it on. That's what it takes. Why? Why, we, why do we think that way? Because the end result, the end result is something that we so greatly desire that it's worth any hardship. Love, money, power, family, comfort, reputation. That's my treasure in life. That's what, make, that's, that's what I live for. That's what makes life sing. Whatever it takes, I want that. But when God says from his word, let perseverance in trials finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, we'd rather pass on that deal. Why? Because the end result isn't something we so greatly desire that it's worth the hardship. Isn't that true? My comfort or my holiness? Which do I hold closer to my heart? Beloved, how do we think our Heavenly Father makes His evaluation? Your comfort or your holiness? As one commentator writes, if our highest goals are creature comforts, this passage is incomprehensible. If our highest goals include Christian growth in Christian character, then James' evaluation makes eminent sense. Because it's all a matter of perspective. You see, what we need to understand is that our trials are a token of God's love for us. As paradoxical as that sounds, it's true. Providential hardships are the means by which God is fitting us for Christian maturity in this life and thus our complete perfection in the new heavens and new earth. And the love of God is never to be despised. Uh, this is so basic and so indispensable a part of our Christian worldview that to forget this fact or to disregard it or to disbelieve it and hope against hope and said that the universe works on some different principle 99 times out of 100 cases for us 
is to pull the bottom out of any kind of biblical view of God's love for his blood-bought people. God forbid. It, it, it means that there's a satanic disconnect in our thinking between the truth of what God has revealed to us in his word and how we live our lives. And the evil one can exploit that to no end. How can a child of God willingly, knowingly shun the love of their heavenly father? We like to say that's impossible. Such a terrible thing could never happen. But we do it all the time. How? By forgetting the word of God. By ignoring it. By not believing it. Or not striving, by God's grace, to trust it. Even if our life is crumbling all around us. Christians must remember the words of Scripture if we're going to view our troubles in their proper perspective. Because God isn't in the habit of giving his children extra biblical revelation in the midst of life's hardships. Friend, if you get really, really sick, or if you lose your job, and you begin to doubt the love of God and the goodness of his character, no angel is going to appear by your side to tell you otherwise. What will happen instead is a brother or a sister will speak the truth of Scripture to you. As a church, we will sing the truth of Scripture to you. Your pastor will preach the truth of Scripture to you. You will read for yourself or remember the truth of Scripture. But if God has disclosed truth to his people in the Bible and we fail to live accordingly, then the fault lies with us. without excuse. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, will we believe what the Bible teaches, though we're still in pain, still sick, still lonely? Still poor, still unemployed, still depressed, still longing for that good thing God has withheld from us for our good and his glory. Even so will we obey the Lord and allow perseverance to finish his work. Pastor John, you have no idea, brother, what I'm going through right now. It's so, so hard. I read this text, I hear your preaching, and instead of it being an encouragement to me to look at my suffering in a more biblical light, to see my suffering, that it actually has a joyful purpose, I'm just overwhelmed with guilt. I fall so short, obviously, of what good Christians should think about this topic. If that's you, Christian, don't despair. There is hope. If there's something in your attitude toward your trials that's marring the wholeness of your fellowship with God and the completeness of your spirituality, then you must pray to the Lord for wisdom. You need to pray that the Lord, through your understanding the theology of this text, would turn your frustration or your bitterness or hopelessness or complaining into pure joy as you allow God's trials to accomplish their purpose in perfecting your faith. This takes us to our second point. Christian, faithfulness in our approach to trials requires wisdom, which God gives to us generously and without finding fault if we ask him. 
Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who will give, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you as a promise. How we pray to God tells us a lot about what we believe about God. What sort of God, theologically, do we believe we're praying to? How we pray to God tells us a lot about what we believe about God. Moreover, when we pray to God during a time of trial, what do we pray for? Just as you're sitting there right now, think about what, what your, your habits, your patterns are in that. During a time of trial, what do you pray to God for? Are, are your prayers biblical? Are they theologically sound? For instance, what promises of God are ours to claim this side of Jesus' consummated kingdom, and what promises of God can the Christian claim only after Jesus returns? The health and wealth and prosperity gospel turns that question right on its head. Or consider this. Do our prayers take only certain biblical texts into consideration, but not others? In the face of suffering and trials, do our prayers consider the teachings laid out for us in James 1, Hebrews 12, the book of Revelation, or is it just the, triumphalist, the triumphalistic kind of text? That's a sermon unto itself, so I'm going to stop there. But what we must see is that Christian faithfulness in our approach to trials requires a whole Bible theology, but it also requires wisdom. A wisdom which God will give to his children generously and without finding fault if we ask. We need wisdom to carry out the Christian life because it takes wisdom to both discern and to carry out the will of God as it's disclosed in Scripture. It takes God-given wisdom to see that perseverance in the face of trials is a lifestyle by which the servant of Jesus Christ ultimately attains perfection. And that kind of wisdom, beloved, is ours for the asking. It's ours just for the asking. God will not scold us for not possessing it inherently. He knows we're weak sinners. He knows we're frail dust. And so he won't find fault with us and reproach us for not being perfect. Right? He's a loving. He's a gracious God. It doesn't matter what trial we're facing at the moment, what the Lord requires of us, he will provide. What the Lord requires of us, he will provide. He, God will generously, without reservation, give us wisdom to both discern and carry out his will. All this is ours, provided we ask for it. Suffering Christian, by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, are you striving to align your will to God's will, even in your pain? How does one do that? What does God's word say? Verse 5. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Period. So let us learn, each of us, whenever God commands something in his word, to ask him for the power to perform it. And we can expect to receive what we ask. But as verse 6 makes clear, we must ask with the right attitude. Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. I pretty much avoid public pools if I can help it. I, I grew up swimming in the St. Lawrence River, so I find the whole concept 
of swimming with a hundred people in a glorified bathtub repulsive, right? So pool water is polluted, folks. Uh, there's all sorts of nastiness in there, and if I swim in that water, I too will become polluted. I don't care how much chlorine they pump into it. And I, it's sad to say, but the waters of modern-day evangelicalism are badly polluted too, and this is the water that we're all swimming in. There's an atrocious lack of faithful biblical teaching coming from too many pulpits and a lot of well-meaning Christians who want to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture have adopted eccentric ideas about prayer and the character of God through sort of an evangelical cultural osmosis. So what I want to do now is correct some misinformation. I want to correct some bad teaching that leads to bad living. This is bad teaching that's very prevalent in our day, and I want to bring biblical clarity. We need to understand the relation between faith and answered prayer and what it actually means to doubt God. Because if we read the first part of verse 6 along the interpretive lines of much of the church today, we might misunderstand James to be saying something like this. Christian, you must be certain when you pray to God that you have a sufficient acceptable quantity of pure, undefiled faith. The quality of your faith and its quantity. That's the key. And if God says no to your prayer, well then that's a certain sign that the quality of your faith offering was lacking. It was mixed with doubt. You must not doubt that you will receive what you ask for. If you have enough faith and its quality is sufficient, then what you ask for is as good as yours. God loves to give good gifts to his children, but don't doubt, or you will receive nothing. Does that sound familiar? That's false teaching. And the mistake is looking at faith as a substance in itself. No, this faith is not a specific quantity or a level of purity or a degree of energy God requires of us before he will act. Rather, this faith is a continuing confidence in the identity and nature of God. James isn't talking about faith in itself. He's talking about faith's object, the one in whom our faith is placed, God. And if that's not understood, if that's not your sort of your prayer foundation, Christian, then any sort of prayer edifice that you attempt to build on top of that is going to crumble. And what James teaches here finds parallels in other New Testament passages about prayer and faith as well. So we're justified in taking his teaching in these verses and applying them to any prayer, not just prayers for wisdom in the face of trials. The faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who is loving and holy and good and sovereignly accomplishes his purposes. And we must not doubt the character of God. Christian, do you want a deeper, richer, more powerful life of prayer? Then your most urgent need is a deeper knowledge of God himself. You need to know God better as he has disclosed himself in Scripture. Take warning. The Christian's motivation for prayer can be wrong. Our expectations for prayer can be utterly unbiblical because the God to whom we're praying is a figment of our imagination. He's not the God who has disclosed his character in the Bible. 
Instead, we're praying really to a benevolent genie who does our bidding. He does our bidding. He's a, a giant vending machine in the sky. He's a small G God who panders to my inflated ego, whose sovereign perfect will is subordinated to my perceived needs, who marches to my tomb as long as my faith is big and pure enough. A God who is not himself the suffering Messiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs, who himself learned discipline through what he endured. What this text does, New City, is demand we align our prayers in conformity with the God of Scripture, with his character. And once we do that, oh, then what joy, what consolation. Because then, this passage gives us a comforting perspective like nothing else can. It allows us to derive our comfort and joy not in our prayers being answered the way that we would want, but in the nature and the character of God. That's, that's a big key to Christian maturity right there. This means all the pressure and anxiety to receive a particular answer to prayer or else disaster in my life, all that pressure, all that bad theology, all that care and anxiety, all the impatience and the selfishness, it can't survive long if we're operating with God's wisdom in the matter. And a God-given wisdom will rest our faith in God himself. If we put our faith in God, in his character, once that good theology kind of gets into our prayer atmosphere, sin won't survive very long. Because God, the God in whom we are placing our faith is the God of James chapter 1. The God who gives without reproach. The God who grants us divine wisdom. The God who will give us the crown of life. The God who gives good and perfect gifts. The God who does not change like shifting shadows. The God who gave us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The good God who gave us his son. The God who reconciled himself, us to himself through Jesus' bloody cross. This is the God of the glorious gospel that saves us from sin. Our faith is in him. How could we have more confidence that he will do right by us? How is it possible? We just have to look at his character and marvel. Our fourth point, and don't worry, these points get shorter and shorter in preaching duration. Christian, live consistently. To pray with doubt is to doubt God's holy character. Such prayers will not be answered and is indicative of a dual loyalty in our souls. Oh. 6a. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The overall theme of the first 12 verses is being faithful to how we respond to trials. So let's bring the discussion back to that point. You'll recall my confession to you in my introduction. When God commands... Uh, let perseverance in trials finish its work so that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. I confess to you, I'd rather pass on that because the end result isn't something I so greatly desire that it's worth the hardship. And I saw a lot of you nodding your heads. You could relate to my perversity. So what's our problem, New City? Why do we think that way? Why are our priorities so messed up that we actually nod our heads along with that kind of, that kind of talk? 
Our problem is that we don't trust God. We doubt Him. We don't believe in Him. We're inconsistent. There's, there's a double loyalty at work. Loyalty to God and loyalty to the world. Sure, we're happy to trust our eternal souls into God's care. But if we're being honest, we'd rather not entrust our careers to his sovereign pleasure, probably, right? Or our love life, or our physical health, or our bank accounts, or the lives of our family members. I mean, who knows what he'll do? A genie would so much better pander to my desires. That's kind of what I would prefer. But the God of the Bible, he may very well refine my faith and fit me for heaven by taking all those things away. But that's what makes life sing. It's in those things my hope is found. It's to those things that I'm loyal. Such a person, James teaches us, is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. Now, and that's not just a vivid simile. Alright, that's terrifying. Really think about it. That's a terrifying picture. James goes on to say in verse 8 that such people are double-minded, or the, 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 a more formal translation of that would actually be double-souled. And unstable in all they do. Doug Moo writes this, this person never has the same texture and shape from moment to moment, but is always changing with the variations of life. Their loyalty is not fixed on God. They are prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire. That's, that's good. That is very insightful. Their loyalty is not fixed on God. They are prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire. I can see that in my own heart, for sure. They want wisdom from God one day and wisdom from the world the next. Because a double-souled person has no fixed beliefs and direction. Their soul has no anchor. And so their loyalty to God is constantly threatened with every wind and storm of circumstance. Have you ever met such a person? Is that verse perhaps describing you? What does the Bible say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The person described here doubts God himself. This person looks for wisdom in other places instead of praying to God to provide them with his wisdom. person like that should know better than to think God is going to answer their prayers. Their soul is divided in two. Part belongs to God, part belongs to the world. They have a fundamental cleavage in their basic attitude towards God. In regard to his holy character, they believe one way now, and tomorrow they'll believe another way. And so James writes, such a person is unstable in all they do, because they're double-souled. There's a, there's a basic division in their soul which leads them to thinking, speaking, and acting in ways that contradict their claim to belong to God. And that's the direct antithesis. It's the polar opposite of the faith James urges his readers to exhibit in prayer. It's the exact opposite. And so now with that, I mean, I know that's dense, with that theological analysis laying the groundwork, with all that under our belts, James introduces the topic of money. Our fifth and final point. Christian, no matter if you are rich or poor, always evaluate yourself by spiritual, not material standards. 
this is perhaps the greatest test. And I think that's right. The greatest test in life, perhaps, is evaluating ourselves and others by spiritual standards, not material standards. These verses are tied to James's overriding concern throughout the section. He wants Christians to display a consistent and an integral spirituality that avoids the, the double-souled attitude typical of too many who claim to be followers of Jesus. And James well knows, as we all do, that money and the things that money can buy are a powerful lure to compromise the Christian's wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And so his thoughts naturally move from the need to approach God with a consistent, unwavering faith in verses 6, 7, and 8 to one of the chief threats to that kind of faith. It says, Jesus warned us in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. James is addressing Christians, some who are poor, others who are rich. And what he does is he exhorts each of them to look to their spiritual identity as the measure of their ultimate significance. Look to your spiritual identity as the measure of your ultimate significance. Verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So, to the poor believer, the believer who is tempted to feel insignificant and powerless because the world judges a person on the basis of money and status, to you, James says, brother, sister, take pride in your exalted status. You're a child of God. Stop looking at things from a merely materialist perspective and see things from God's perspective. Get the reality of the gospel before your eyes. It needs to be informing your every thought. The gospel is not just what's get you saved and what tips you into the kingdom. Its reality impacts every facet of your Christian existence. It's, it's what smashes idols in your life. And this links back to prayer too. The wisdom which God will give to those who ask without finding fault is the ability to see things related to money as they really are. To arrive at true definitions, to cease to live by what appears to be true and to live instead by what is actually the truth of the matter. Even in our financial trials, the poor Christian can think, how rich I am. And that might be a good thing to deliberately pray the next time you're filling your gas tank to the tune of $120. And so we're, or, or we're adjusting our financial expectations on this front and that front due to the economy. Right? When, when financial realities are hard, Christian, we need to pray how rich I am, even though I might be in humble, lowly circumstances as the world reckons things. Oh God, give me wisdom to live in a sustained awareness of the heights to which I've been lifted in Jesus Christ. Because if we don't do that, if instead we push the gospel to the periphery of our lives, off center stage, then very quickly we're going to see all sorts of things in our life to complain and grumble and be anxious about. Lack of money, first and foremost. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And to the rich believer, the believer who is tempted to think too much of themselves because the world holds them in high esteem and fawns over them, James writes this, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation 
since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So do you see? Don't take pride in your money or your social position, Christian. Those sorts of things are doomed to fade away forever. It's like a flower underneath the scorching sun. It's all vanity. Instead, instead, glory in your humble status as a person identified with a crucified, weak Messiah, a God who is despised and rejected by the world. Identify with the foolishness of the gospel. Identify with God's people, the weak and the foolish of this world. Stop looking at things from a materialistic perspective and start using the eyes of faith. The overall point is this. Both rich and poor Christians must evaluate themselves by spiritual, not material standards. However, maintaining such a perspective in a world that so insistently confronts us with very different standards of measurement, that isn't easy at all. Poverty and wealth are perhaps the greatest test for Christians. So we need great wisdom, loved ones. And the wisdom which God will give to those who ask without finding fault is the ability to see things related to material possessions as they really are, to arrive at true definitions, to cease to live by what appears to be true and to live instead by what is actually the truth of the matter. And if the church is to be the kind of countercultural society that Jesus intends her to be, then such biblical perspective is essential. So in closing, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Live consistently. Seek Christian maturity. Pray that the Spirit of God would fill your heart and wean you from the warped, selfish priorities of this world, brother, sister. Pray with faith that the Lord would stoop to your weakness, as mighty as he is, and make you love him and trust him as you ought to love him and trust him. As members of this church, may we daily be pursuing the spiritual discipline of scripturally informed prayer, individually, of course, and as we gather weekly with our brothers and sisters. No dreams, no spiritual ecstasies. Let's pray the Lord would take the dimness of our souls away. That we would understand the scripture and obey it. As I'll unpack further next week, verse 12, and this will close. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen.